thank you for giving me this opportunity again to come share God's word with you. Um, to start with, actually, let's look at Psalms 139, and we'll start from verse 7. We'll go to verse 12. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. Even the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So I have to confess, I actually won't be preaching from uh, Psalms, but uh, as I was studying for this, I'll be preaching from the book of Jonah. Actually, I want to actually teach the entire book, so we'll see how that goes. Um, I mean, a lot of people use Psalm 139 to start off their sermons when they preach on Jonah, but it is also fitting because of what Jonah or what um, David writes about. Interestingly enough, though, is uh, David wrote the psalm as a complete opposite of what we <laughs> kind of use uh, Psalm 139 for when <clears throat> speaking of Jonah. David wrote the psalm as a praise to God for his faithfulness, that even in the depths of the worst things in life, you know, the pits of Sheol or in the heavens, God is still there. That no matter where you are, God is near. God is infinitely infinitely and acutely interested in your life. And David does an amazing job of explaining uh, explaining it by saying things like, Oh Lord, you have searched me. You have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? You know, David wrote the psalm as a positive outlook toward God. But, you know, when we or when using the psalm to preach from Jonah, we often do the exact opposite. You know, we, we kind of use it as a negative toward Jonah, like Jonah, what chovsti, die foot, die weiß die nicht. So I'm actually taking Psalm 139 out of context, sorry. Um, so what I want to get from this message uh, is that the story actually is not about Jonah. It's not about a great fish. I mean, the book of Jonah is actually the most well-known prophet, one of the minor prophets anywhere. Even unbelievers know about this book, and they know the message in the book um, because of that great fish. And it's often the book of Jonah is, uh, you know, refuted because, well, that's impossible for what happened. But um, the story is not about a great fish. It's not about a great city or a nation. It's about God, God and his nature, his character, about God and his interaction with a disobedient prophet, about God and his mercy and his grace, his patience, his message message of salvation, and his desire to see mankind know him, and also his sovereignty over his message being delivered. So as we look at this story, it is my desire to highlight the character of God as we go through the story, and then later on... um, We'll kind of do a review on that. Actually, the way I'm kind of doing this message is actually 
um, how ethnos, like mission, I'm a part of how we teach um, unreached people groups. So we teach the story and then try to highlight how what does this talk about God or how does this talk about God, and then wrap it up with with a little application. That's that's my hope. But before we get into the story, um, I want to take a brief look at the historical context just so that we get a better understanding of the text. I guess I'm kind of a nerd that way. but um, And I have to confess again, in the history part, I'm actually I'll just be quoting a Bible t- uh, school teacher that I had just because uh, he knows a lot more about this than I do. And so... Um, and I didn't have time to study the contemporaries of Jonah, you know, Amos, and Hosea. Um, so I'll just be quoting from my Bible school teacher, uh, Brian Connard. So Jonah, the son of, son of Amittai, or Amittai, as some people call him, is the main character of the book. According to 2 Kings 4.25, Jonah, the son of Amittai, was a prophet in the northern kingdom during the time of <clears throat> Jeroboam II, around 793 to 753 B.C., it is commonly agreed that this story about Jonah took place around 760. As a result, the historical context of Jonah is the same as Amos and Hosea. So prior to this period of time, Assyria had actually become a dominant power. In fact, Jehu had actually not too long before Jonah's day submitted and given Assyria some power over Israel. Israel had faced repeated attacks from this nation since the 9th century. At this point in history, um, in Jonah, the power of the Assyrian Empire faced a major decline, <clears throat> which actually led to Jeroboam's successful expansion of Israel's territory. As a prophet of God, Jonah may have well been aware of the message of God using revived Assyria uh, to destroy wicked Israel in the near future. It's uh, something we get from the book of Amos and Hosea. And if so, you can imagine why he wouldn't why he uh, wouldn't want to see them spared from the disaster that God had wanting was wanting to bring on them. So Nineveh at this time was the largest city of Assyria, but at this time was not the capital. That didn't happen for another fifty years under the reign of Sennacherib. It it had been earlier made a base for Assyria's military operations. Therefore, Israel would have uh, been very familiar with this city and what it represented. And the situation that we find this book in in regard to Israel is the northern kingdom of it actually had actually experienced a great deal of success and expansion. Yet we also know from the book of Hosea is how God or how you know Hosea was told to marry a prostitute and then keep following her to bring her back every time she ran away. It was a picture of Israel's disobedience to God and how God likened them to a prostitute and being unfaithful to him. And so uh, this time was characterized by great wickedness among the people of God. God had brought judgment and the strong exhortation of the prophets to turn the nation back to himself. But the people kept living it up in their comfort and self-sufficiency. This book reveals God's concern and engagement in the affairs of the whole world, not just his chosen people. Jonah's story would bring shame on Israel because a wicked pagan community hears God's message and repents. Meanwhile, God's people are hearing God's word regarding judgment and will not repent. We'll get that from Amos and Hosea. So that's just a little bit of a history uh, behind the book of Jonah and the purpose for the book of Jonah. But before we go into the story, let's, uh, let's pray. 
Uh, Heavenly Father, just thank you for another um, day to gather together to fellowship and to hear from your word. And Lord, I pray now that uh, this morning you would speak to each one of us and help us to learn from the example um, of Jonah. Help us to learn more about you and uh, learn about you know how you interact with whether it's with us or with um, through the example of Jonah and through the example of Israel and Nineveh and the sailors that are found in the book. Uh, so Lord, help us to learn um, and grow through your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's get to the story. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call it against it, for their evil has come up before me. And so in the first two verses, we see Jonah commissioned. What I'm reminded of about this short commission is, is that it is God who's the initiator of the gospel, of his message, um, of salvation in general, which is obvious, but sometimes we forget that fact and we take it upon ourselves to, to not sell stone. And then it becomes all about us and not about God. You know, and we know if God did not initiate uh, this process, or it would, uh, you know, where would we be? We would all be hopelessly lost without a chance, separated from God for eternity. So God calls Jonah to bring this message of judgment, but he this judgment in order to show mercy to the city that would, as we talked about a little bit, would later become the capital of uh, the Assyrian Empire, the hated Assyrians brutal Assyrians, and humanly speaking, they were hated for a good reason. They were incredibly violent people. But in verse 3, as we know the story well, Jonah refuses to go. And we'll read from uh, verse 3. I'll probably end up reading the entire book of Jonah, so bear with me. Um, so in verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship that lay down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. 
Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us this innocent blood. For you, O Lord, has done, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I mean, we talked about Amos and Hosea. They both prophesied that Assyria would overthrow Israel and rule over them. And obviously Jonah is not happy about this prospect, and then God calling him to go to Nineveh uh, to uh, tell them of the destruction. And we have to remember what is the purpose of a prophet when he's going to, you know, tell someone of destruction. I mean, his the purpose of the prophet is to bring messages from God and call the people to repentance. He does not want Nineveh to repent, which, I mean, humanly speaking, I would we would say probably for good reason. And then in chapter 4, he actually confesses that's why he didn't want to go to Nineveh, because he did not want them to experience the mercy and grace of God. So Jonah flees to Tarshish. And most of these also don't as Tarshish. And, uh, but first of all, I see this as Jonah's first attempt to, to run. Uh, later he tries a different method, death. Uh, but we, as we know, uh, he failed at both attempts. Shows God's sovereignty over how his message is delivered. Um, how he wants his message to be delivered. And, and also the fact that God has power over life and death. So Tarshish is basically the opposite direction from Nineveh. Not quite opposite, but uh, Nineveh was from Joppa, where Jonah was, was only uh, was 500 miles northeast. Whereas Tarshish is actually 2,500 miles west um, of the coast of the Mediterranean Sea where it spills into the Atlantic Ocean. In Spain, um, it's a town. There's a town there called Tarsus, or which is to believed to be uh, Tarshish. Um, so, just to give a better, better mental image, I thought about that, and it's like Hotel Savit. It's actually like, for example, if we were called to go to Prince George to go and do a preaching, but instead we found no Halifax, going to another country, just that we need to go to Prince George for. Um, so the question. We can ask now, again, it's going back to Psalm 139, that you cannot run from the presence of the Lord. And I think he actually did, did know that he can't run from God. He knows that God is omniscient. He is a prophet from God. Jonah is trying to make himself unavailable. He's trying to run so that this undesirable task done. He does not want the Assyrians to know and experience God's grace, for he knows that God is merciful and gracious. Really, Jonah kind of is racist. Um, but now I want to ask a question. Vosavi and I, in that way, like how, and there's a reason why I ask this, but how do we feel when God is, for example, prodding us to share the gospel with our neighbor? How do we feel when we see immigrants moving into town? Um, like I was talking to Will earlier, I had the sudden urge this morning to call in sick. <laughs> um, like you, uh, 
God gives you an opportunity to share with people and yet not we weren't glad under back on the run. And I remember actually this was back in Ontario when I was going to through the mission training. I got rebuked by my one on one mentor. Uh because I forget exact the whole context behind, but I was uh talking about immigrants, which I know is a touchy subject, but uh I guess I was upset about something. But he reminded me that Earth is not our home. We are here only temp- as temporary residents. You know, we have so many people coming to, into Canada, which only a short time ago were, in all uh, practicality, unreachable. Now they're in a country where they are free to research and even question their religion. Meaning we can even we can reach unreached people groups from the comforts of our home in Canada. Or at least portions of these people. You know, there's an interesting stat that places Canada's fifth place in all the world for the amount of unreached people groups represented in our country. And all of that through immigration. Most of them are refugees displaced by war or unrest in their countries, making them, from what I've gathered when I've talked to some people about it who are involved in ministry to them, making them open to Christianity. In part because they've become so disillusioned by it infighting from their own religions. You know, they're being persecuted. I talked to one man who was trying to reach uh, the Muslims in the Toronto, greater Toronto area. Um, and all, a lot of these Muslims are kind of angry with their own religion because they're being persecuted. In their own country, they were being persecuted by their own fellow Muslims and getting kicked out of their own country, and yet they are of the same faith. And... Uh, they were totally open to the gospel and to the message of Christianity. So he reminded me to be more other-centered, reminded me of why we as Christians are here. You know, we are here to spread the gospel. We're not here to be comfortable and make sure our Canadian culture and way of life is preserved. And I know that can be a touchy subject. It's just that we so easily forget our true purpose. And we start to defend our comforts and preferences over our faith in Christ. And I'm reminded here we are comfortable and we forget the price our brothers and sisters all across the world are paying to just believe in Jesus. So back to Jonah. Jonah tries to run. In verse 4, um, I have the first one of the what I call the but God moments. Um, Jonah tries to run, but God brings a great storm. I think he sends a storm for two purposes. I mean, he's trying to get Jonah's attention. And the purpose of that is he wants Israel to repent, and he wants Jonah to repent. But what happens? Jonah's fast asleep in the ship. Meanwhile, the the sailors are terrified of their life because the ship is breaking apart, but Jonah's sleeping. And that also just reminds me that we as men are, men in general, humans, are totally capable of running from God and not even be too worried about it. We can be so hardened by sin, we don't recognize when God is trying to get our attention. And uh, here's an ironic thing. Uh, God then uses a pagan, a polytheistic man to call a prophet of God to prayer. In verse 6, So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God, perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. Um, 
This is a powerful picture of God's sovereign uh, control or his power over his creation and his purposes. And even in all of this and all of God, if all of Jonah's disobedience and trying to run away from God, God still wants to use him. God still wants to use him to bring his message. You know, I'd, I personally think God would be so much better off by using someone who would actually go. <laughs> but no, he, he still wants to use Jonah. And, uh, and I guess we have to keep in mind that God is using this story to show Israel their hardness of heart towards him and to the nations around them. Because part of Israel's mandate was they were supposed to be a light to the nations around them. They were supposed to, um, in a sense, be a light to the world, but uh, they, were, they were supposed to tell others of God's goodness and greatness, and they failed. Second purpose that I think God had for this storm is for those sailors. Um, again, just showing God's care for those uh, people other than God's chosen people, Israel, God's chosen nation. God wanted these mariners or these sailors to know him. And this little section stood out to me for a couple of reasons. First, they're polytheists or animists, and those are mostly the kind of people that, um, me being part of ethnos, that we be we try to reach. And they believe some god or spirit has been offended, obviously because this storm is so much more than they've experienced. They know that this storm is supernatural because of how they um, react to it. The ship is breaking apart. They need to appease this god that has been offended. And since their prayers don't work, they do have to figure out who's responsible for this, so they cast lots. And casting lots was common in the ancient uh, Middle East and in Israel. But this also shows God's sovereignty over Jonah's affairs because they cast these lots and who does it fall on? It falls on God's disillusioned and disobedient prophet, Jonah, who then ironically speaks to them about the one true God. You know, Jonah explains to them who he is and what God he fears, which is also kind of interesting because he says he fears this God, yet he's running from them or from him. And, uh, Obviously, we, we know how the mariners react to that. It's like you say you fear this God and you're running away from him. Like, are you crazy, Jonah? Really? This God who made everything told you to do something and you're doing the exact, exact opposite? Um, but I also see this section as uh, God addressing the worldview of these men. You know, they cried out to their gods and nothing happened. Jonah tells them of the Creator, the one true God who made everything. Uh, he tells, I mean, he, by that he shows them that his God is so much greater than their gods. Their gods cannot control the weather, but Jonah's God can. And he actually caused the storm to happen. And they recognize that this God is the one to be feared. They see this and they respond in humility. They believe God. They worship him. They fear him and sacrifice to him. This stands in stark contrast to Jonah, to Israel. They hear the message of God and respond while Jonah and Israel's heart is hard towards God and his message. Again, in another indictment against Israel and Jonah. And uh, verse 12 through 16, I see this as Jonah's second attempt to run. Uh, I mean, he couldn't disqualify himself by running away. Um, so 
I guess, throw me in the lake, let me die. That way I get away from doing this job. And again, this is another contrast to uh, these sailors. Uh, between Jonah and these sailors is, you know, Jonah wants to die so that the Ninevites aren't saved. But these mariners struggle with all they can to get to shore so that they don't have to throw Jonah in. Because one thing they do recognize, they do not want Jonah's blood on their hands. They do not want to face the judgment of this God who can control creation, who's Jonah's God, or like, who is Jonah's God. They do not want to be held responsible for the death of Jonah. So therefore they cry out to God in a brief prayer for mercy, and then the men throw Jonah into the sea, and the storm stops immediately. And the sailors feared the Lord. They offered a sacrifice and made vows to show um, that they were convinced that the Hebrew God was incredibly powerful. And I kept thinking that, okay, maybe these pagan sailors renounced everything and they were now believed God, but really we don't. The text doesn't really say that they renounced their polytheistic gods and practices, but the text does say that they recognized the God of Israel was powerful and was to be feared. I personally do think that they probably were saved, but uh, we can't really gather it from the text. And here's the second but God moment. You know, Jonah is thrown in, but God isn't done with him yet. So he sends a fish. Uh, we know what happens. We're all familiar with the story, but here's another quote from my uh, uh, my prophet's teacher. Um, Jonah's expectation of death was swallowed up, no pun intended, by God's sovereign, independent working to send a large fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was preserved for three days and three nights in the stomach of this fish until he was deposited on land exactly where God wanted him. God vite what I did. He is not taken by surprise. He knows uh, He knows what he's doing. And we can take comfort in that fact. So then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, we find uh, Jonah's prayer while he's in this fish. And we'll read starting verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet again, I shall, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountain, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So Jonah prays this eloquent and poetic prayer of thanksgiving and prays to God for saving him from death. So we do see a slight change maybe in Jonah's, uh, on Jonah's part. Maybe his heart is getting softened. He recognizes he wants to live and also recognizes that it is God who can save him from the plight that he is in. This is God's provision 
as an answer to prayer for help. You know, and then Jonah's looking back at his time in the sea and at near death, and he recognizes God sent this fish to save him, and he puts his confidence in the Lord to save him, to give him a chance to live and to worship God. In verse 10, God answers Jonah. Jonah is vomited onto the dry land. God is faithful to keep Jonah on track to bring his message to Nineveh. God is bringing him back exactly to where he wants Jonah to be. And again, we have to keep the big picture in mind as to why God is doing this, as God has more in mind than simply this wayward prophet. I mean, remember, God is concerned for Nineveh. I mean, if change does not happen, then he will have to destroy and wipe out a city made up of people he cares for. God is also concerned again for Israel. He knows that Nineveh's positive response will be, uh, will stand as a negative statement against Israel, a reminder for them to repent. So then in Jonah finally relents. In chapters 3, the uh, whole chapter is Jonah's uh, message to Nineveh or the Lord's word to Nineveh. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call it against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what he did, what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So verses 1 through 2, we have God's second commission of Jonah. Yet through all of the uh, bad attitude that Jonah has, uh, God has not given up on him. I find this incredibly amazing and encouraging. If God has so much patience for Jonah, then he also has so much patience with us. Uh, God can, if God can use Jonah in all of his disobedience, then God can use us even if we fail him. You know, we, or I've always grown up with this picture of God that but the reality is God is so much more patient. So verse 3, Jonah travels to Nineveh. And in verse 4 is where his message starts. The size of the city is again, again emphasized, and I think God did that for a purpose because there's so many people there, and God cares for all of them. As he travels through the city, he preaches the message God has given them. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. 
Now, don't say much for a message. Actually, in Hebrew, it's only five words. So he doesn't, even though he does preach finally, he doesn't give that much effort into it. An interesting thought on this word overthrown. I decided to do a little bit of a word study on it. And uh, in Hebrew, uh, the word can mean a lot of different things depending on the context. It can mean to turn, to turn about, to turn over, to turn around to change, to transform, to overthrow, or to overturn. So actually, in the end, Jonah's prophecy does come to pass, just not in the way he intended or wanted to, because the people of Nineveh were changed. And uh, again, this is indictment to Israel and to Jonah. You know, this should be a reminder to them that they were to repent, That God, and then if they were to repent, God would also relent of the disaster that he had proclaimed upon them that was found in book in the book of Amos and Hosea. And verses 5 through 10, we get the response of the people of Nineveh. In verse 5, amazingly, they believe God. They call for a fast. In verse 6 and 7, even the king humbles himself and repents. And then he calls everyone else to repent. And then he even calls the animals to repent. And I think this is a little satire against Israel to compare or contrast Israel with this pagan nation that even the animals repent, meanwhile Israel is still living in sin. The king calls everyone to turn from the evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Um, you know, from this book, we get the only content we get from Jonah's preaching was of judgment and destruction. So he doesn't, from what we get, doesn't even call them to repent, yet this pagan nation recognizes their sin and they repent of it. God is so good in revealing to man his greatest need because God only can do this. You know, we can argue and debate and try to convince people of their sin, but only God has that capability. So this stand, in contrast to Nineveh, what does Jonah do? You know, Nineveh, repents of their violence, and Jonah harbors violence in his heart towards them. He wants him to be utterly destroyed. He does not care whatsoever about them. And the king makes an interesting statement. He says, who knows? Maybe maybe if we repent, God will turn and relent from his fierce anger that we do not perish. And I think this is a smart guess by the king. I think this is a smart bet by him because God is so much more graceful gracious and merciful than we can ever imagine. And then what is God's response? When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, he relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. God responds in mercy. Again, quoting Brian Conard. God's readiness to have compassion on a wicked but repentant people and to withhold threatened destruction showed Israel that her coming judgment at God's hand was not because of his unwillingness to forgive, but because of her impenitence. And then, after he saves Nineveh, God switches his focus back to Jonah. And in uh, chapter 4, kind of marked, it says, God teaching Jonah, or he God is Jonah's teacher. Starting verse, we'll read chapter four as well. But it displeased Jonah exceed, exceedingly, and he was angry, 
And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So just break it up a little bit. In uh, verses 1 through 3, we have Jonah as the complainer. You know, Jonah completely rejects God's goodness and mercy that he showed to Nineveh. And he even admits this is why he tried to run away. He knew God was this way. He knew God was merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And in a way, Jonah's kind of rebuking God. Because if we remember the historical context, Amos and Hosea had prophesied that Assyria would overwhelm Israel, would completely destroy them. Um, in Hosea 11.5 it says, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. In Amos 4.2, it says, The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. Doesn't sound like fun. So you can imagine what's going through Jonah's mind. God, what are you doing? These people will ravage your chosen nation, and here you are sparing them from disaster. Why would you do this? So just take my life. Just kill me. Jonah, in a sense, is kind of throwing a fit. Kind of childish, actually. It's better for me to die than to live. That is pure emotional. First, in chapter 3, he wanted to live, and now he just wants to die. And all of this over the mercy of God. Jonah had been the object of God's grace, yet was still unwilling to see God have grace for Nineveh. I just find that amazing. <laughs> But how often do we do that? I guess in a different way. I mean, we have been the object of God's grace, yet to go and share the gospel with people. And in that way, we, in a sense, are unwilling to see God's grace um, be given to others because we're not willing to share about what God has done. So verse 4 God has the last word. God is the teacher. It's kind of like Job, where Job questions God, and then in the end, God is like, no, ni harti to me. 
It's interesting. Uh, Jonah mentioned in verse 2 that God is slow to anger. And I can't see God being any more slow to anger than with Jonah. Even in the midst of Jonah calling calling God to execute his wrath on Nineveh and then questioning God for not doing so, God is still not angry with his wayward prophet, but instead instead seeks to reason with him. The Lord questions like, Lord, uh, Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Well, Jonah gives him no answer that time because there really is no answer. There is no reason for him to be angry. Then Jonah leaves the city in his childish anger and he sits down and kind of sits and waits to watch the fireworks. Nothing happens. I, it's just so amazing. God is so gracious and nice to Jonah. He appoints a plant to shade Jonah from the heat. And... Uh, Again, just seeing Jonah's uh, emotions go from high and low. Jonah's exceedingly happy. He's incredibly happy. Ironic since he's so happy for his own comfort, yet does not care for the saved lives of the people of an entire city. Then God appoints the worm to eat the plant, and then the hot wind to blow. The plant dies, and again, Jonah's overcome with emotion and just wants to die. He is an angry, proud, and and he's unwilling to accept God's heart in this manner. And then in 9 through 11, God doesn't lash out at Jonah. He questions him. He reasons with his prophet. Do you do well, do you do well to be angry about this plant? And Jonah's emotional response is, yes, angry enough to die. And verses 10 through 11, God appeals to Jonah through the example of the plant that God provided for him. You know, God said to him, Jonah, you pity the plant, which, I mean, which really God provided and made grow. Why would God not have pity on this city? This great city, which have more than 120,000 people who do not know their left hand from their right, or children, also much cattle. God is trying to show Jonah that he has no right to be angry over Nineveh or the vine because he, Jonah, did not give life to them. It did not give life or sustain either of them. Nor was he sovereign over them. He did not cause them to grow or to wither. You know, Jonah cared more about the vine than for the people. Jonah's selfishness would be a reminder to Israel of her lack of concern for the ways and mercies of God. God is trying to show Jonah how distorted his view is, showing that he cares more about the the life of this vine than he does about the lives of people that God cares for. And then that's kind of the end of the story. We're kind of left with a cliffhanger. We don't know what happens to Jonah. We do know what happens to Nineveh later on and to Israel. Assyria does um, conquer Israel, and later Assyria is judged for that. But 600,000 plus people got saved in a day by a disobedient prophet, one who did not want to do it. That to me just shows the sovereign power of God over what he wants to have done. So let's review a little bit by looking at what this story reveals about the character of God. I mean, we've talked about it a little bit, but God is a creator. Jonah spoke to these sailors about his God being the one who created the earth and the sea. You know, God appoints the fish. He made the plant and the worm. And he caused the plant to grow. 
God is sovereign over creation. And there's a lot in this story about how God is sovereign over, over his creation. In chapter 1 through 4, he hurled a great wind. And then he, in verse 11 through 13, the wind grew, grew stronger. And then in verse 15, he calmed the, storm, calmed the sea. And then God used pagan men to call his, pop, his prophet to prayer. He appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. Then God caused the fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land. Then God made the plant to grow and to shade Jonah from the sun. Then God assigned this worm to eat the plant. Then God caused the scorching east wind to blow. And then in the end, God used a disobedient, unwilling, bad attitude prophet to bring the message from God that ended up saving the lives of 600,000 plus people. We see that God is love in this story. And none of this is new. I mean, he saved these sailors. He saved the savage, brutal Assyrians. And then God even loved Jonah. Like, how many times does God show his love to him? Through the fish, saving him through that, through the plant, giving him shade, and then pleading with him to repent. And this story on every level reveals the love of God in action. We see the God of, uh, that God is patient and uh, how God is so patient with such a stubborn and disobedient, unwilling and hard-headed and racist prophet, I don't know. But it must be that he has utmost patience with his creation. This gives me hope that if he can be so patient with his prophet, then uh, he can be patient with me as well, which uh, really does bring me a lot of encouragement. We see that God is merciful and gracious. He's merciful to the mariners or to the sailors and showing them the truth of who he is and thus sparing them and they believe God. He's gracious and merciful to Jonah and not wiping him out or deciding that he will use someone else. And again, he's merciful to the Ninevites and sparing them from the disaster that God had planned. But in all of that, God is also the judge. I mean, God's message for Jonah to deliver to the Ninevites was one of judgment. You know, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. We know that God is judged because he's the creator. He has the right to judge because he owns everything. The sailors recognize this because they recognize he's not a God to be messed with. The Assyrians did not, the Assyrians did not want to face the judgment of God. And uh, one aspect that I guess it just stood out to me because partially of um, my worldview and what I used to believe, I guess, God is a pursuer. God is the one who pursued Jonah, who pursued those sailors, who confronts their worldview to show them that he is the creator and he is in control. God is the one who pursued the Assyrians. It was not Jonah. It was not his people. Even God's prophet did not want to go to the Assyrians. So it has to be God. God is a pursuer of mankind to bring man back to himself, and he does this because man is not seeking after him. So how do we apply this story? Then there's probably so much more about the character of God that I could that we could talk about in this story. But God shows his dealings through Jonah and Nineveh that he is desirous to extend mercy to anyone who will recognize wrong and turn from it, ultimately to respond to the Lord in faith and to avoid eternal judgment. We see that God is sovereign, and it is ludicrous to think one can run from him. 
and sadly, I mean, we, we see the pagans in the story, the sailors in Nineveh, respond appropriately to the Lord, while Jonah, God's own prophet, responds, contra- uh, responds contrary. This stands as an accusation against God's own people, Israel, whom he is desirous to extend mercy, but they will not respond correctly. And then just looking at myself, it is amazing to see how I can get so self-centered that other-centeredness is pushed entirely to the side. A focus on God will evoke other-centeredness, not self-centeredness. And like God's dealing with Jonah, he can convince us of our self-centered hearts in many creative ways, and I think he does that a lot, at least for me, Dado. And one thing that's been, as I've mentioned a few times, but has been encouraging to me is the fact that God could still use Jonah in all of his rebellion. I mean, God used him to reach an entire city, over 600,000 people. And, and this gives me hope that God can use even a broken, often failing person like me for his purposes. I also find that this book helps confirm that uh, missions or the Great Commission is about God. I mean, he is the initiate, initiator of salvation. He pursues man because it is ma- impossible for man to find God of his own effort. It is his message. It is his mission. We are simply partners with God in this commission. It's not about us. It's not even about the lost people. It's not about my love for the lost. It's about not about what I do. It's all about God. And there's another application that I thought of, and it's uh, it's, it's a hard one. I know me and Daryl talked about it the other day. Um, it's kind of the correlation of the comfort wealth we have in our land that our generation actually has always um, experienced. We've never experienced a time where we've faced real hardship. No, individuals have, yes, of course, but um, we've never faced the Great Depression or World War One or World War II. Um, we have all this wealth and comfort. And then through that, we get so relaxed that we forget about what God has called us to do. Um, like I often talk about that we should be um, investing in the lives of people and the people we know. But I can't do because I'm I'm one of the most self-centered people, persons. I don't know exactly how to say that, but um, I often have this sudden urge to run away when I do have that opportunity to sh- to invest in the lives of, pe- of others. But even in that, God is still faithful to work. I mean, he did through Jonah. And he can work through us as well. So my hope this morning is that we can glean some encouragement from the story as much as we often fail. God is still God. He is still faithful to do what he says he will do. And he will accomplish what he says he will accomplish. And we can learn more about him and how he interacts with us each day. And to conclude, to f- finish it off, I just want to read Ephesians 3, uh, 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen.